0: This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Good morning. My
1: name is Father Richard Kuntz. I'm here with Cindy Jennings, my co-host, and we are coming to you from the beautiful Diocese of Duluth, Minnesota, on the shores of Lake Superior, and we are actually um, uh, at St. James, my parish. I forgot to mention that earlier. So, we are we are at st james here and uh, the st james campus of selamaris academy which is our catholic school here and uh, i've been really looking forward to this um uh, this next segment so we've had um uh, um a se- uh, we've had a guest that's been on here before and he's a good friend of mine and we've talked uh, for several months about having a a longer segment about the issue which is a very exciting issue uh, that w- we'll get to in a second. So we have Dr. Tim Rich in studio with us and Dr. David Ingbar on the phone. These two are uh, partners in this in this uh, um, uh, thing that we're going to be talking about. So, Dr. Ingbar, are you there with us?
2: Yes, I am, and I'm happy to join you.
1: Thank you very much. It was, it was good to text back and forth with you a little bit last night, uh, just to get ready for the show. But I just want you to know, Dr. Ingwire, is that we are going to try and keep Dr. Rich off the air as much as possible. (laughs) And so this is, this is more of an opportunity for you to talk because this is like a challenge. I'm finding this to be a challenge. I'm looking, I'm looking at this as a, as a fun challenge. Are you up to it, doctor?
2: Um, I'm certainly willing to try, but I'm not optimistic. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can tell you've known Dr. Rich for a long time. So, so, uh, Dr. Ingvar, why don't you start off? Just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Uh, I am a professor of medicine at the university of Minnesota. My clinical area of specialty is pulmonary and critical care medicine. And I direct the division, uh, at the university, which includes about almost 40, uh, specialists in, disease, critical care, and sleep medicine. And for uh, my entire career, really, I've been uh, uh, researching the repair of the lung after it's injured and damaged, and uh, got interested in uh, the use of T3, actually, back in the 1980s, dare I say. So this is uh, more than 25 years in the making. Um, and I've been at the university for almost 30 years. I was at Yale on the faculty and did my, some of my training there. Uh, for ten years before that,
1: so we might call you a smart man.
2: Uh, I don't know
1: if you'd say that. <laughs> well, well. Um, uh, anyhow, I mean, so that's great. Now, I, I am gonna, I'm gonna go against my own rule. I'm gonna bring Doctor Rich in. He's been a guest here before. Now, just for listeners, I've never done this before, where I've had two guests, one on the phone, one in uh, in studio. So I'm, I might stumble with this a little bit. uh But so, Doctor Rich, welcome back to Real Presence Live. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: I, uh, I grew up on a sheep farm in northern Wisconsin and uh, uh, got into the interest of medicine at that time, just caring for uh, our farm animals. And uh, then went on to college and uh, afterward got into research, uh, in particular benchtop research, as well as a, a clinical trial in heart transplant uh, uh, to see if people rejected their organ um, early for indicators. Um, And then went on to uh, medical school at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Stayed there for internship, residency, and then fellowships in pulmonology and critical care medicine. And with that, um, um, came to become interested in this thyroid and lung association. Um, And that's when I really got to know Dr. Ingbar, my partner David here. As, we, as I joined his ongoing research in the thyroid and lung and have continued that research after leaving fellowship and coming to Essential Health in Duluth in 2007 and have been functioning as the chair of pulmonary medicine while conducting this clinical trial in acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS.
1: Okay, now can I interrupt you for just a second? Okay, no, this is not part of the game, Dr. Ingbar. So, but, uh, but, so, so, the, so here's the deal. It's like, I just want to tee this up a little bit because there might be some listeners thinking, about, so what is this? All this stuff. I, I don't know what these words mean. The, the reason why this is such a big issue right now and why we were talking, I've been talking to Dr. Rich about this for a long time, is that, that, um, Dr. Ingbar and Dr. Rich are on the cusp of a basically, um, I don't know if the word discovery is correct, that can tr- literally transform the world as we know it because of the pandemic that we are in. And this is this is a discovery that has come right out of Duluth and the University of Minnesota that can literally transform the world as we know it. And and I'm not speaking uh, uh, I'm not trying to be exaggerating here uh, just to give you an idea it was on the cover of the Star Tribune just yesterday. It's amazing that the main story in the Star Tribune yesterday would not be the election but would be this. And so this is literally the second public uh, announcement about this huge discovery that has taken place here in Duluth and then in the University of Minnesota. So I just want the listeners to know why we have you guys on here and maybe explain a little bit, Dr. Ingbar, how how that, how that this can transform things in the world as we know it. And I don't want to overstate it, but I don't think I am.
2: Sure. So let's turn back the talk for a minute before any of us ever heard of COVID or sars cov or whatever we want to call it. And um, there, for a long time, has been a uh, major and serious lung problem called uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, or AODF, that Dr. Rich was referring to a minute or so ago. And it first really was described and appreciated during the Vietnam War. It was called benign lung or shock lung And what we understand is that this is really a severe form of lung failure where patients require mechanical ventilation um, and uh, get very ill. And um, so there's been effort over the last 50-plus years to try to find effective treatments for this ARDS or severe lung failure. And really, you know, unfortunately, it's come up relatively short, I would say, we discovered a lot of things about how to best care for patients who are severely ill, and who need to be on a mechanical ventilator, including you know how much to inflate the lungs and things like that. But we haven't found good treatments for that. And so, the work done in my lab and that Kim has helped contribute to Dr. Rich um, demonstrated that one treatment that might be helpful either solo or in combination is thyroid hormone, um, and so we were working on this before anybody ever heard of COVID, um, and the ARDS standard ARDS, as I call it, um, occurs in a little bit less than 200,000 people per year in the United States, and the mortality rate, in spite of years of working on improving our treatment, is about 40 percent higher in people who are older. But then COVID hit, bang, and in you know in New York City in March, the, in April the mortality rate for the people with COVID who got on a ventilator with ARDS, essentially, is over 80%. We've improved a lot since then in our care of patients, and um, the good news is that mortality is markedly less than that for the COVID patients who get stuck on a ventilator and have ARDS. But it still is very high. So as Tim, I think, will tell us during the course of the show, you know, we had been spearheading this effort to have a clinical trial ready to treat standard ARDS, and we happened to have this open and ready to go when COVID ARDS started to show up. And you know, obviously, we're all looking for uh, ways to improve outcomes for patients who get that.
1: Yeah, because I mean, I, I remember at the beginning of this whole COVID thing, you'd hear on the news if somebody's on, if somebody gets on the vent, it's like it's almost like a death sentence. You know, and so, uh, and so, exactly. What and so, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know where to jump ahead with this because between uh, Dr. Rich and Dr. Ingbar, there's so much you probably can talk about, but the thing that keeps coming to my mind is like the patients, what's happened, you know, I mean, in your testing and, and uh, what it was like when you gave this, maybe, maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Dr. Rich, why don't you just chime in? Right. I think,
3: I think to keep the chronology of the story in place, we can talk a little bit later about the clinical trial, but I think it's important to just talk about the inception of the science and the laying down of the normal biology to establish that the lung is a target organ of thyroid hormone and how in the normal functioning of the lung, uh, thyroid hormone is utilized and then what happens to to that function in, in disease, and so David, do you want to talk about some of the, the early work, laying these these new discoveries?
2: Well, just I'm some... happy to do whatever Father Clint would like. I, I, <laughs> if I would he just wants, I'm if a... on the clinical fine if he wants me to talk science. I'm happy to talk more science. No, but I don't want to tag that out for the audience.
1: Right, no, Doctor Ingbar, I appreciate you saying that because I've, uh, I've told Doctor Rich this a few times. We have to make sure that it, it's simplistic. I don't want to talk about too many, uh, like, uh, um, uh, words that would be used that would lose the the listener. You know, I, 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 I want to keep this teed up in regards to to why this is so significant and why why we here at Real Presence Radio are pretty dang lucky to have you guys talking about this on our air when this is on the verge of being so big. Uh, maybe to 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 go back a little, and only because I don't know you, Doctor Ingbar. I do know Doctor Rich. Is the idea of some of the work, like, uh, and to stick with chronology, maybe at least in my mind, is um, uh, like the autopsy work that you were doing. And when was that autopsy work happening?
2: So yeah, correct. So let me let me take a stab at this, and sort of then I'm gonna we're gonna play sort of uh, quote drop the hatchet. I'll start, and then I'm gonna hand it off to Tim. So many moons ago we got interested in the potential role of thyroid hormone and lung repair. What we showed, and I'm not going to go into detail, is that when the lung is damaged, it gets filled with fluid. Um, And the little micro air sacs, or alveoli as we call them, that have the oxygen that then moves into the bloodstream and uh, get filled with fluid, and then they can't work. You can't get oxygen in. And so the thing we demonstrated pretty early on was that Thyroid hormone would act on the cells that line these air sacs or alveoli to make them essentially work like sump pumps. They clear out the fluid from the air spaces, let the oxygen get in, and let it get transferred into the bloodstream. And we also found found that they uh, reduce the inflammation in the lung when the lung is exposed to a variety of things that trigger inflammation. So uh, a colleague of ours, Uh, Dr. Manish Bhargava, working with us, demonstrated that, you know, in in animal lungs, that even when the lung was damaged, thyroid hormone would stimulate that absorption of fluid out of the lung and improve the ability to transfer oxygen. So about that point, Tim was moving to Duluth, and one night turned the, the ball over to him.
3: And so... We began making the translational step from the benchtop and animal models to now, what do we see in patients? And that was in 2009, 2010 that we had the onset of the last pandemic, which was the H1N1 influenza. And that was also a real tragic time for a lot of people, mostly in their middle age. Um, It was, uh, I think, 80% of patients who died were were between the ages of 25 and, and 60 years old. And they were dying of this thing, ARDS, caused by the influenza virus, this H1N1. And
1: ARDS being what?
3: That is the the inflammation and swelling of the lung that occurs because of the injury caused by the virus. Mm -hmm. And as part of that pandemic was the question, um, what can we learn from these tragic deaths? And so I began asking families and, uh, frankly, in the depth of their grief, if they would allow us to do autopsies on these patients so that we could have samples of their lung and then take that to our lab and, and learn. And what we found is that there was virtually no detectable thyroid hormone in the lung tissue of patients dying of this ARDS. And... In addition, we found the presence of another protein, which was responsible for the destruction of the thyroid hormone that would have been present. And so that discovery was was significant because what we were seeing in the lab at the bench and in small animals we were now seeing clearly in patients who died of ARDS. And then the, the, maybe the, the most important thing that we figured out, which brings us to the clinical trial today, is we also did autopsies on people who died of anything other than ARDS. So now we were able to see in them what is a normal level of thyroid hormone. And the difference between that, that normal level of thyroid hormone and the fact that there was none in ARDS actually has established our replacement dose of thyroid hormone today in the clinical trial. So this
1: was an aha moment for you.
3: It was. For both David and I, this was an aha moment.
1: Okay. So we're talking to Dr. David Ingbar and Dr. Tim Rich here about um, a new discovery that's happening that is going to be very important for us in regards to the world of COVID, but the world in general. And we're going to talk more with them after this very quick break.
0: Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network.
4: Hello,
3: this is Mike Kidrowski, Director of Advancement for Real Presence Radio with a creative gift planning tip. Do you want to make sure Real Presence Radio continues to receive your support in perpetuity?
0: You're listening to Real Presence Live now. Back to more inspirational and uplifting stories, and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area, heard right here on the RPR Network. Just like that canned voice said, you are listening to Real Presence Live.
1: This is Father Richard Kuntz, and I am uh, along with my co-host, who has not said a word so far this hour. But but I'm sorry,
4: not that I'm not talking. Cindy
1: Jennings, and we're in the midst of a very good. discussion with dr tim rich and dr david ingbar about um this huge discovery that is uh just starting to unravel in the public eye uh it's going to get big here (laughs) and uh, if you live in the twin cities or you get the star tribune you know what we're talking about already but i interrupted dr um uh, uh rich in regards to what he's talking about in regards to what was happening with the last pandemic and the autopsies you were doing with the people that died from the non ards and the ones that did die and so that's where we took the break
3: Correct. And so the important thing was, is we were now able to directly observe in patients what we were thinking and seeing in animals and benchtop work. And that was in the setting of ARDS, there's no detectable thyroid hormone in the lung. And if you die of something other than ARDS, there is this very normal range of tissue thyroid hormone in the lung. And so the difference between that normal range and, and seeing nothing ends up being what our theoretical replacement dose of thyroid hormone is that we would now be giving patients in the clinical trial. But before we could do that, we had to figure out a way to deliver thyroid hormone to the lung that would be bioavailable. And so, David, do you want to pick up for how the years that we spent developing the formulation?
2: Sure. I'll do it very briefly so that we can get back to the patient. Piece, I think, which was uh, part of uh, Father Klink's question. Um, just in brief, you know, the, the thyroid hormone we're talking about comes in a couple different flavors, and I'm not going to go into detail. But normally, the normal thyroid gland makes thyroid hormone and releases it into the bloodstream, and then it can act throughout the body where it's needed. Um, when people get really ill, it's been known for a long time that the measurement of you draw some blood and measure the amounts of thyroid when they go sort of uh, out of whack. And and people have sort of said, ah, it's not really significant to the patient as a clinical problem. Um, But the studies that Dr. Rich did really suggested, hey, maybe this isn't uh, so uh, harmless and maybe there are certain tissues and parts of the body that are affected when these uh, thyroid hormone levels go uh, to very low levels in the bloodstream. And so that's the significance of what he just was talking about, is that, you know, we now think that the changes that occur when people get ill in thyroid hormone tissues may actually be clinically important. So what we're trying to do is figure out how do we get the lung levels of thyroid hormone back up towards their normal levels, knowing that, uh, it's very low, and that the protein that destroys thyroid hormone is very active in the lung of these patients. And so we thought rather than trying to give the drug into the body systemically by uh, orally or intravenously, why not give it direct to the lung? And so the problem is that that's never been done to a human before to sport or. or spray or aerosolize thyroid hormone into the lung. So what we did is worked with colleagues in what's called the Center for Translational Medicine University, and we were able to modify the existing approved formulations for intravenous use uh, so that they could be given uh, directly into the lung. And what the colleagues found when they did these experiments was good news, bad news. The good news is uh, it could work. The bad news is if they didn't do the formulation just right, um, the animals got severe damage to their airwaves and lungs. So, uh, then, uh, we got approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, to actually do this clinical trial. So here comes Dr. Rich to a patient's bedside who's eligible for the trial. This is now back in March. Uh, the patient has COVID ARDS. And Dr. Rich gets the, uh, questionable honor of being the first, uh, physician to administer thyroid hormone this in humans. And it, I think that the thing that, uh, you might not appreciate at first glance is that because Tim knew that the formulation could work in animals, but it had to be done just right or else it could be really damaging, um... And that makes you really nervous. So, Tim, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to talk uh, about what was it like to treat that patient for the first
1: time? Yeah, uh, thanks, Dr. Ingbar. You know, I mean, I, so, you know, the reason why, you know, Dr. Rich is on the show is because, you know, I mean, he's a good friend of mine and very faithful Catholic, and he's always been asking me to pray for, you know, certain circumstances, whatever the situation is throughout the time that at least I've known about his work with this and, um uh, I remember that day very well. And here's the interesting thing to put it from a faith perspective is that, that, you know, I mean, here we've got the sheep farmer, you know, <laughs> who, who, who grew up like, like King David, you know, and, and is doing all this work with you, Dr. Ingbar, all these years. And, uh, here comes the giant, right? It's called COVID. And, uh, and that's the analogy I kept throwing out to, to Dr. Rich. We got, um, we got David, the sheep farmer, taking out the giant, covid and that's what's exciting about this who would have guessed dr inguar and dr rich that as you guys were doing all this work for 15 plus years that this would be applicable to a pandemic that has transformed the entire planet earth and so you know that's that's what dr rich was facing as he's giving this drug for the very first time for the to the very first patient here in duluth minnesota and so maybe dr rich can talk to us a little bit about that how that went and what was going through your mind
3: and so in spite of more than 20 years of research and, and too numerous to count, formulations, reformulations, um, all the testing for safety, um, it's still a stop-your-heart moment when you have in, in front of you a critically ill patient and you're administering this novel drug down their airway to the site of, of the organ of injury from this ARDS. It's, it's really quite a moment. And I'm going to credit uh, a very, very close colleague of mine, Dr. Antonio Eduardo Marinos, who is a critical care physician at Essentia Health. I wanted him to administer the drug so that I could watch and observe, and I'm glad that he did because my heart stopped. and Because everything to David and I first is <clears throat> patient safety. We are physicians first, so everything's about protecting the patient, patient safety, tolerability to the rest of the body. And then we're scientists. So first do no harm and then see if you can help. And so that evening, and we can talk a little bit about this later, but the, the wife who provided consent um, on behalf of her husband, who's critically ill on a mechanical ventilator with a high mortality unable to consent for himself to receive a novel study drug. Novel that's meaning never been done before. Never been done in the setting of a global pandemic. That's courage. And so to administer this to that patient, everything at that moment was, was safety, was um, trusting our compounding lab at Fairview Compounding out of the University of Minnesota Uh, trusting the Center of Translational Medicine and the formulation with Dr. Robert Schumacher and staff, that the formula was correct. Um, And in giving that patient at that moment, um, and I sat with the patient um, outside their bay um, for hours, uh, it was, in fact, safe, and that was the first hurdle. This is a phase one trial with the FDA, and that's all about
2: it. It was then, right. It was was then,
3: yep, correct. It was then. It was so phase one trial, which is safety to the lung, and so that this formulation, once it was delivered to that tissue, did not cause any additional lung injury, but also tolerable to the rest of the body, that it didn't cause a systemic side effect.
1: Because this guy's already on death's door, you know? So you don't want to do anything that's going to cause him to have more of a complication with his health.
3: Correct. He's he's on the precipice right. of of a uh, of, of further decline, and so... What we don't want to do is add to that. And um, so it was, right, it was really a tremendous moment. And I know that David understands that David was the first to give um, surfactant in a prior clinical trial for ARDS down the airway. And, um, and uh, it, is, it was a tremendous moment and, and tremendous because at least we learned that in that moment it didn't hurt the patient, and now mm-hmm. we hoped that it might actually help.
1: mm mm-hmm. And so, okay, so you, you would, you administer the drug and, and you and I, we were talking and texting, uh, many, many times throughout the day mm-hmm. at that, for those periods of time. And I remember on a number of occasions going into the, my church and going and praying the rosary for this, this patient number one and patient number two as well, but, and now patient number three, but, but, uh, the idea of, uh, walk us through this happened. Walk us through, walk us through patient number one. Walk us through what happened.
3: Right, so it is, it is uh, being vigilant, and so it's administering the drug as designed <clears throat> in the way it was supposed to be delivered, and then observing, and as you say, praying, but observing all of the data that is coming from this patient. And, and, and just to give the, the, the proper credit, this patient is going to get better because of outstanding critical care provided. And at Essentia Health, the critical care staff is just top-notch. And they're doing all the right and best and most aggressive things that we know now are good for ARDS. And so the hope of this drug is that it would be another tool that can be used in in this disease. Um, And then it was seeing if the patient, based on their blood work um, that we were getting both before and after the dosing, um, watching them over time to see if in the next 24 hours they would be able to get the second dose, and then, again, lab work, all of the monitoring of the patient, and then seeing over uh, the next 24 hours would they be eligible for the next dose. We never quite knew if the patient would be able to accept the next dose, but this patient did to complete the entire um, protocol. Um, and that was very exciting. Just, just a little bit of inside baseball. You know, before the dose was given, we checked their blood level, and this patient had no detectable thyroid hormone in their blood. That's not a surprise. We expect that. We see that <clears throat> in critically ill patients. And with each subsequent dose, we could see the blood level of their thyroid hormone um, increase to a low normal range. And so, um, it was very exciting to, uh, have, first of all, this patient tolerate in a safe way, um, the doses, one dose over four days, um, and then begin seeing them make some improvement from this, this ARDS.
1: And which is a dangerous thing for you. I mean, just let, let's, th- let's take it not from the patient standpoint, but from the, you know, what we're hearing in the news all the time with all these uh, you know, drug tests to make sure we have an ant- something for this COVID, is, that, COVID is that, that you didn't want this in any way, shape, or form just from the scientific side of things for this patient to get worse because that you put your new novel um, uh, drug in him. That would have been very detrimental to your work.
3: Correct. Um, if there was any adverse event, and this is all very tightly controlled by the uh, FDA, um, but this had all been worked out extensively at the University of Minnesota. We believed that this was a safe and tolerable drug that had the potential to help. But you just don't know what any particular drug will do in at a particular dose in a particular patient. And so uh, there's always that concern. Again, physician first, scientist second. Uh, if there had been and there wasn't, gratefully, if there had been, then we would have paused the trial, and um, that would have been a full report to the FDA, and, and rightly so.
1: And so the, the span of time before patient number one was getting better and you're doing the drug was what? The span of time. I mean, when did, when, is there an obvious cause and effect here, or is that what we're still trying to figure out?
3: In a phase one trial, you cannot determine a cause and effect. It really is a focus on safety tolerability. And so um, everything to us was was focused on that.
2: So in- what okay, happens in science a lot is you know, and I'm sure your listeners have seen this occur. Is you read in the newspaper, oh, we've got this great new therapy, you know, you know, it'll it's going to help this disease, and then it turns out not to work so well when it's tested further. And we've seen that I would say too many times. So you know, we may have the impression that giving this drug made this particular person better, or even in a small group of people that it makes them better. But we have to be sort of cautious about drawing conclusions about sort of on what you might call an anecdotal basis. So even if Tim and I thought, hey, we think this really helped a person, you know, if we've treated two or three or five people, it's hard to prove that scientifically. So you can sort of have a belief or a hypothesis. We we'll want to make it sound scientific, but you got to hold your your sort of judgment and, and remain, you know, scientifically open to sort of saying we haven't proved it yet.
1: Right. Well. Um, uh... Dr. David uh, Ingbar, if, you, if, if uh, Dr. Rich ever makes a mistake, you can go ahead and chime in if he screws up, if he says something wrong. But anyway, we're, we're talking to Dr. David Ingbar and Dr. Tim Rich uh, about a new discovery medically that could ha- have a great effect on uh, the world these days with COVID. And uh, we'll talk to them a little bit more after this break.
0: Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. His father
2: Gabriel Wauero, from the Diocese of Tulum. I've been a priest for 12 years in the United States. I am very happy to be a priest. I have watched many people receive peace because of a priest. Many times I meet people in grief. I meet people who are suffering. I meet young people who have lost their way. And as a priest, through prayer, through sacraments, through counsel, I have seen the peace of the Lord in their hearts. I believe every one of us needs this peace, and as a priest, we are able to bring that peace of the Lord to, uh, to them to them, whether they are on their sick bed, whether they are grieving a loved one, or whether they have been hurt by someone else. I love being a priest, and I think everyone, every young man out there should consider becoming a priest to bring the same peace the world needs so much today.
0: I'm Father Paul Rutten, the pastor of St. Mary in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I'm one-third of Rutten Radio on the Real Presence Radio Network. On behalf of my brothers Rutten, I'd like to invite you to join us for Rutten Radio Wednesday
3: morning, November 4th at 7 a.m. as we discuss the movie of the month, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. We will also delve into the Church's teaching on purgatory and how we can better understand this gift of love. See you then.
0: This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live, and you know I
1: just want to do a little bit of correction. Eli, the voice in our head that you hear at the beginning, at the end of the show, he's a little offended that I keep saying that that canned voice that says Real Presence Live, I guess that guy's name is Bob. So as Bob said, this is Real Presence Live. And I am Father Richard Kunst, and I am here with Cindy Jennings, and we are talking to Doctor David Ingbar, Doctor Tim Rich, about this new discovery that um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about.
4: So you you gave them the medicine, and they are the T three. Can you kind of talk about what's going on with the families? What are they thinking? Are they are they nervous? What's going on with the families in this that of the patient that you're helping?
3: Sure. So. Uh, in this, patient one, um, it is his wife. Um, in patient two, it is the sister. And I, as the principal investigator, end up meeting these families very late in their decision-making. So, so that to avoid any conflict of interest, the patient receives a diagnosis of ARDS by the primary critical care team, and then the research nurse for the trial begins screening the patient for inclusion-exclusion criteria, and then the, with the help of the critical care team, the family is approached to measure their interest in entering a clinical trial. And then the research nurse will go ahead and educate them about the trial, present a consent form, et cetera. And so it really isn't until that consent form is signed that they meet um, myself, the principal investigator. And it's in meeting them that I'm just in awe so we've been working on this um, uh, line of science and drug, this clinical trial, and getting it to the bedside over many, many, many years. And now the day comes that there is, there is a, a family member who says yes. And it's, it's been so fun in seeing her and her husband in the outpatient clinic um, and, and just sort of going back and processing with her what was she thinking and, uh, because I'm in awe of her courage and she said, in effect, um, how could I say no? He wasn't doing well. Cause
1: the first patient in the world ever to get this drug.
3: First patient in the world. And you're ever talking, to get this you're drug. talking to the wife. Correct. Yeah. And so, uh, she says, how could I say no? Cause he was in rough shape. He was in tough shape. Yeah. Um, and so she, uh, I answered any final questions for her and she says, uh, uh, are you, are you sure that it won't hurt him? And I said to the best of our knowledge, it won't, but I can't be absolutely sure. Do you think it will help? I said, that is our hope. And so, and so, uh, she went ahead and said yes. And, and then I would update her, um, after every single dose, um, every single day um, throughout his uh, dosing of this drug as well as his ICU stay, him being out on the floor and then being discharged and then following them for a, a total of two years after. And so she's an extraordinary person. And uh, for patient number two, uh, the sister, um, also just extraordinary. Um, she was making also a very similar decision based on the fact that one patient before had tolerated the, the drug well and seemed to have gotten better, again, because of great critical care. Um, but she is also trying to make that very difficult decision for someone that she loves um, with, with no certainties. And uh, she will say the same in that he was doing so poorly, how could I say no? And so I'm just very, very grateful to them. I think as we accumulate um, the treatment of these patients, and again, always showing the safety and tolerability of the drug with, as we wor- work into our phase two trial, possible efficacy um, that will that will help other families make the same decision.
1: And now we're on patient three. Why was there, I mean, so I've walked with you on this whole thing. Well, I mean, at least n- since the time I've known you and uh, maybe explain a little bit. So we had patient one and two in the spring when COVID was like first hitting. And then we didn't have patient three until just like this week. Correct. What, what was going on? Why, why do we wait so long?
3: Right. So by design, uh, because this was a novel drug in a very um, serious disease, uh, the FDA wanted us to pause after the first two patients for a review of all the, the clinical data. And as part of this trial, there is a board that's assigned. These are content experts um, in ARDS that, oversee the clinical trial called a data safety monitoring board and they david and i presented that clinical data to them from patients one and two they then review it thoroughly and then they generate a report and that report goes then to the fda then the fda re-reviews everything and then they made the decision that phase one was complete and they authorized the commencement of phase two Phase two is a proof of principle. So phase one is in these patients, it appeared to be safe and tolerable. So now phase two, proof of principle. Let's see if this works and let's adjust your dosing and duration and frequency of of drug to see if it actually does the things that you believe it might. You're hypothesizing, as David said. And then following that FDA approval, it then took some time to then adjust this protocol to reflect the things that we would do in phase two, which would be different than phase one, and then um, getting approval from what's called an IRB, an Institutional Review Board. So there's lots of processing, and all of these things are really focused on patient safety.
1: So now, and I don't know if this is Dr. Ingbar, or if, if it's, I mean, whoever can answer this question, it's like, so... Um, uh, and I'll, I'll just throw it out to you, Dr. Ingwer, and maybe Dr. Rich is the one to answer. But, okay, so now we, we're we on patient three, and uh we're only at Essentia. Where do we get, when do we get to the point where it's like we can spread this out? This drug, seen, uh, it obviously, it doesn't seem to have any adverse effect. It yeah. seems that there might be a cause and effect. At what point do we say, okay, other hospitals are now going to start administering this drug? Because this is when it's going to become really, really big.
2: Right. So that's actually a really important and interesting question. Um, so, you know, the the things that are being done are carefully regulated, pre-approved, and monitored by the FDA. But we definitely wanted the, the chance to have more patients treated with this drug and hopefully to benefit from it. But also it gives us, it moves us quicker towards the, to answering the question of, gee, is this really beneficial or not for people? And so what we've been in the process of doing for a while now is getting approval to open a trial at multiple Twin Cities hospitals. Um, Since I work at the university, those are hospitals within the Fairview or M Health Fairview system, like the University of Minnesota, Fairview-Southdale, and the hospitals that take care of the patients with COVID-ARDS. Uh, currently St. John's Hospital. So we're in the process and have had our protocol reviewed by the University IOD uh, Investigational Review Board. We are in the final stages of getting their approval, we believe, and hope to have this open in the Twin Cities. The, one of the reasons why we haven't taken this more national is that... Um, As we talked about earlier, we had to take the existing intravenous formula, which is a liquid designed to be given directly into the vein, and modify it so it can be safely squirted into the lung. And doing that took a lot of time and work, and as I sort of was saying earlier, you had to do it just right. And so we weren't confident that we could send this or describe it to a person in Boston, Massachusetts, or Seattle, or San Francisco, and have them do it exactly the same way and have it be safe. So, one of the things that's been happening in parallel, which is exciting, is that our colleagues uh, in the Center for Translational Medicine, Bob Schumacher and company, have actually developed at the university a way to produce this directly from, you know, sterile powder. That lets us avoid this, and, and is creating a more stable solution that could be shipped around the country. So uh, we are in the process of getting the FDA to approve our switching from the uh, modified intravenous formulation to using this uh, reconstituted powder formulation. Will, th- will um, that
1: will that delay Will that delay anything in regards to having these other hospitals and having to wait off for the FDA again?
2: Well. You know, honestly, I don't know. we've had we've gone back, you know we've we've submitted it once to the FDA. They said we want to see the following things. How long it will take, I'm not sure, but I just want to say that you know we read a lot about the FDA these days. they have been uh, very responsive to us and very uh, supportive, I would say not not inappropriately, but they've really turned things around pretty quickly and been good to work with so. How much of a delay, if any, it will take, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, this will cause. But, but, you know, it needs to get approved by every individual hospital's uh, investigational review board. So it's not a snap thing where you can do this uh, just overnight. And besides, you know, we're early on in terms of really knowing whether this treatment works or not. Dr. Rich and I believe there's a high likelihood that it does. Otherwise, we wouldn't be spending all of our time on this. Um, But you know we have to do it right scientifically. Also, so you know, if we said, "Okay, anybody, any hospital around the country, go start doing it," you know, right. we would never know if it worked well. It's sort of like, dare I say, what happened with hydroxychloroquine? <laughs> sure. <Right. laughs> um, So you don't you, you don't know, want to get
1: poli- you don't want to get political, basically. Is all is no, I saying.
2: don't want to get it political, and we want to make sure that if we're going to advocate for this, that we have not just our belief, but some scientific hard evidence that it's benefiting patients. Right, right. Yeah. So sorry for the long-winded
4: answer. Well, and no, 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 back right. to the third patient, Dr. Richard. So now that you have to tweak things, you're in a position where, I mean, how about if you feel very confident in the first two patients and what you gave them, now you're having to change what you're doing to see how it affects patients. So what happened with patient three so far? I know this just happened last week, right?
3: Right, so we were... Uh, for again, phase phase two is a proof of principle, and with patients one and two, we were giving a graduated dose of the medication up to our theoretical replacement dose. Uh, but with phase two, we are actually giving our theoretical replacement dose uh, to that patient to start, and they uh, that uh, person um, receives um, this dose now every twelve hours instead of every twenty four over. Um, over a four-day period. And so, uh, again, what we're seeing is um, uh, safe intolerability. And as we do more patients, then we we look at the physiological effect and the clinical effect um, in analysis later. Well, just, and and it, I, I just want to add a little something that David had said. Um, you know, this has been a, a – the, the process of getting to this point has involved a lot of highly technical – um, Benchtop research, animal research, etc. But as we get to the bedside, it's it's a, a rather simple concept that this is thyroid hormone replacement for the lung. And the replacement of hormone in patients that are critically ill is common, and so examples would be an an insulin drip, uh, for example, that we give critically ill patients to help the pancreas. Some patients require uh, 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 epinephrine um, to help maintain blood pressure and heart rate, um, st- steroids and things like that. So we we commonly do hormone replacement for other organ systems. Um, uh, this w- th- this work is is hormone replacement for the lung.
4: Okay. And uh, would you say that you're in what you're doing? And this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but the Stuff that you've been working on, all this research, can it affect things in other areas like CF, cystic fibrosis, or bronchitis, or, um, and I don't know, Ingbar, if you, Dr. Ingbar, if you could answer, maybe go into that a little bit, maybe lung cancer. I know there's a lot of information sure. with or cancer, pneumonia. Yeah. Pneumonia, yeah. bronchitis, yeah.
2: So I think, you know, because the, the effect we think of the thyroid hormone is not just one single thing that it's sort of pumping out the extra fluid, it's reducing inflammation. There are a number of different uh, conditions where this could potentially, this approach could be very helpful. Um, so a couple of them are like heart failure, where fluid accumulates in Another is um, babies who are born prematurely before the lungs are, are mature. Um, they don't have this fluid absorption system in full paturation. So that's another time when this potential might be helpful. And then there are lung diseases. And um, we have some colleagues at uh, Yale, uh, colleagues slash competitors, who actually have some data suggesting when people get a lot of lung scarring, that this approach might be helpful as well. So, I mean, the exciting thing, or one of the exciting things in my mind, is that this may not be an approach to treatment that's beneficial only for people with a severe lung failure or ARDS, but it may be helpful for a number of other conditions as well. And the I'd one like thing to, I would just, on. can I just oh, go, go back for a second? Yes. Because I think one of the things for the public to realize is, you know, we're not some big drug company. The university is a big entity, but they don't have the millions and millions to spend on a project that a drug company does. But a drug company to get a project you know, a product from idea to clinical trial typically takes about 10 years. Um, you've heard from us that, to me, this has taken 20-plus years at least. Um, and I just want the public to appreciate the fact that, you know, without basic research funds from the National Institute of Health to my laboratory, without actually a lot of philanthropic support that came in uh, from some great patients and from others, we never would be at this point you know because it's it's not as if we could develop this it takes a lot of resources and what's a little uh, weird is that in the you know in the product development world things have to be kept secret to keep maintain patents and stuff like that Science and universities operate by having things that we light in order to compete for grants. So one of the challenges over the last 10 years is actually to get funding to do this research while preserving the university's ability to have the patent on new treatment approaches. And so, you know, I'm really grateful to Dr. Rich because he's been a a driving force that's made our partnership really great because it's, he sort of kept us going on the clinical end while I've been doing a lot of the uh, more laboratory based research stuff and but without that long period of funding from various different sources, we wouldn't be able to be giving this drug to patients
1: we you know uh, we only have like a, a a minute left you know, and I know that maybe the listeners want what I want to hear is that, um, and we do. I just want really, really quickly, you know, I, somebody took the time during the during our interview just to send out an, uh, a text and email, at least to to our studios, asking uh, us to, you know, just grant, you know, give you our, our thanks for everything that you guys have done because we're on the verge of transforming a lot of things, hopefully, and and this is on the verge of becoming very, very big. I mean, you've got patents everywhere now, don't you, for this drug?
2: Maybe I shouldn't go there, but well, <laughs> so you I mean, you I mean, you we're do on do the do verge of personally. Right, the university right. has applied for patents, and you know, and that's the way, or one of the ways that we hope to further develop this treatment approach is, you know, by partnering with other groups so that we have the support to, you know, test this approach in other diseases, as we were discussing earlier.
3: Yeah, and if I would close out and say, I'm happy to report that patients one and two, at their 30, 60, and 90 day clinic follow ups, have completely normal chest x-rays normal lung functions and are are back enjoying a high quality of life and that's 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 what we're focused on not just surviving right. ARDS but living a life normal to prior to getting it and we hope that this drug is yet one more tool in that box for um critical care physicians
1: yeah and uh, just again uh, is the, the lead store in the star tribune newspaper just yesterday i'm sure you can get it online still and so uh Obviously, this is very exciting. We're on the cusp of this. We're honored that we uh, that you guys were okay and the university was okay of having real presence uh, radio be the next. Uh, so I, I want to thank D- Dr. David Ingbar and Dr. Tim Rich for being uh, guests, and we're we're going to be following this and very exciting. So thank you very much for yes, both of thank you coming you. on. This is
4: amazing. Well, thank you for inviting
2: us. It's been a pleasure to be with you all. Thank yep. you very much. Yep,
3: and thank you to Essential Health and the University of Minnesota as well. Thank you. Great.
1: All right. Well, great. Thank you very much. Uh, so now I think we got Eli waiting alongside of us here to talk to us about the next show.
5: You sure do. Thanks, Father. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, really exciting. Um, you know what, Doctor Rich and Doctor and Ingbar have been able to to share with us, and you know I don't I don't think our our listeners have probably realized, but they, that's been like a whole hour, and it at, at least from my point of view, it's flown by and I think it'd be great to have them on again. But there's another great show coming up tomorrow morning, 9 to 11 a.m. Central, right here on The Real Presence Radio Network. That's hosted by Deacon Paul Trinan and Heather Carroll, coming to you from the Abbey of the Hills in Marvin, South Dakota. They'll visit with Paul Strong about his journey after the loss of his father. Then Father Paul Timmerman of the Diocese of New Ulm will ask, do you need some direction? Plus, Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference will join us to dissect the results of today's election. All that and so much more is coming up on the next Real Presence Live, 9 to 11 a.m. Central, right here on the Real Presence Radio Network. Right back to you.
1: Thank you very much, Eli. Yeah, I mean, that that hour went by very fast, and I think that there's uh, – I mean, I wouldn't mind – Bring them back on again because, oh, uh, especially as things really start to develop here, as things are moving on. And again, I want to just refer people to the Star Tribune, go to their website. You'll be able to see it. It just, it, you'll be able to see patient number one and two. You know, mm-hmm. instead of right. being named one and two, you'll actually see them and hear and see their names. But it's uh, fascinating stuff. And so today's a big day, Cindy. Yes. Uh, pray for some of the champion of the pro life causes moving forward and those candidates being successful. You know, I will. Yeah. Yeah. And so get out there and vote and, uh, vote pro-life when you, uh, um, when you are out there to vote. That's the only subject that the church refers to as an intrinsic evil. And so we'll give you a little bit of a blessing right now as you go on your way to vote to the polls. May Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Until next time. God bless.
4: God bless.